Thank you, Alex, for that introduction and for inviting me to share some of my work with you this afternoon. I'd also like to thank both the Bodleian Library and the Renaissance Society of America for co-sponsoring the research fellowship that has brought me to Oxford this month. As Alex mentioned, I did part of my graduate training here at Lincoln College and it's really been wonderful to be back and to have the opportunity to spend part of my research leave this year working in the Bodleian Special Collections. Over the past 10 years or so, there has been growing interest among literary critics in the soundscapes of 16th and 17th century England. The sounds that surrounded early modern people, the ways in which they might have experienced those sounds, and the spaces and social settings within which sounds reverberated. Song, the focus of my current research, was a vital component of that acoustic environment. Song permeated early modern culture, and in a much more communal aspect than the more private and isolated ways in which many people tend to experience song today. Just think of ubiquitous iPod headphones. Early moderns would have been accustomed to hearing songs sung in the streets by merchants, vendors, and ballad mongers touting their wares, in commercial playhouses, within the church, and within the home. They would also have been accustomed to singing in many of those spaces as well, whether body catches at a tavern, ballads or part songs in familial gatherings, or psalms in domestic and congregational settings. Considering song in these acoustic and musical terms represents an important critical shift in early modern literary studies. Although we experience 16th and 17th century songs not only as readers, but also as audience members, and in some cases even as singers, most literary scholarship on song has tended to focus on the verbal and textual dimensions rather than the musical and the performative. In other words, when a literary critic encounters a song, whether in a sonnet sequence, a romance, even a mask or a play, the tendency is to engage with it as text, as poem, rather than as performance. Musicologists, too, have often shied away from the performance-based elements of song, focusing instead on the abstract musical work and the notational framework of its score. This critical imbalance has arisen in large part from disciplinary trends and modes of training, whether literary or musicological, that can make it difficult fully to integrate musical, textual, and performance analysis. But it fails to do justice to the multiple functions of song in the early modern period as lyric, as musical genre, and as instances of embodied performance within specific social and acoustic environments. My research aims to bridge and to integrate these different dimensions of song in considering a number of questions about the scope of song's rhetorical work in the 16th and 17th centuries. Why do early modern writers turn to song at particular moments in literary texts? How does song function within and shape particular social, cultural, architectural, and textual environments? And how do gender and the physiology of the singing body contribute to song's effective impact? It is this last element, the embodiedness of song, the visual and acoustic phenomenon of the singing body as instrument, 
that I've become increasingly interested in as my work in this area has, has developed, and perhaps not surprisingly, given my own training and background as a singer. Song was understood in distinctly physiological terms in the early modern period. It was believed to act directly on the body as the vibrating air produced by the voice entered and stimulated the vulnerable ear and then actually the spirits of the listener. It was for this reason that musical sound was understood to have especially potent rhetorical power in the 16th and 17th centuries. Choice of instrument and melodic and harmonic progression were believed to be capable of manipulating a hearer's behavior, mood, and even their health for good or for ill. And this notion is famously captured in accounts of Alexander the Great leaping up from the dinner table at the sound of one kind of music, ready to uh, fight, only to be pacified again a few minutes later with a change of, of harmony. So this is an example from a 1631 conduct manual by Richard Brathwaite, and he describes uh, one, one Timothy, a musician so excellent in music, that if he used a sharp and severe harmony, he stirred up men to anger, and presently by changing his note to a more remiss and effeminate strain, he moved them to peace, both of which effects he once produced in Alexander the Great at a banquet. To attend to the singing body as instrument and its effects on hearers brings with it significant methodological challenges. The musical and vocal soundscapes of early modern England are ultimately ephemeral and are further separated from us by a temporal distancing of nearly four centuries. How then are we to capture the phenomenon of early modern song and of the singing voice? An important component of my current work involves reconstructing the experience of song through a surprisingly rich array of traces preserved in literary, musical, and cultural documents of the period. Probably the most familiar example of these kinds of traces is musical notation itself, preserved both in manuscript and in print. We rely on such evidence for our knowledge of particular song settings and of connections between individual composers and writers. And this example is John Wilson's setting of Shakespeare's Where the Bee Sucks, There Sucks I. Extant notation, especially in manuscript collections, can also tell us much about how particular songs circulated and the relationship between vocal and instrumental practice. And here's a really fun example from uh, a song manuscript that includes a section scored for treble voice and theorbo. And before that section begins, whoever compiled the manuscript has spent some time just reminding him or herself of how the frets of the theorbo work, and then um, re re sort of going over practice in practicing intervals again. So it's a good evidence of, of the very practical dimensions of these manuscripts, that they weren't, they weren't simply used for presentation, but actually for performance. For the purposes of my project, musical notation can also register tantalizing details about vocal technique and style. And this is a really um, florid example of vocal ornamentation or uh, embellishment uh, in an anonymous setting, an Italian piece, uh, Dovo Dovo Coro Mio. And it provides really good evidence of the influence of the Italian musical style that was coming into England at the beginning of the 17th century, uh, but also of the incredible detail uh, that was expected of the singer. You can see um, these 
these really whirlwinds of, of embellishments here. The actual interpretation of these ornaments, of course, is only hinted at by the score. Um, as French composer and theorist Benigne de Basily comments in 1668, we must depend upon the singer's ability to interpret these subtleties properly until such time as a superior system of notation is invented. Musical notation also gives us glimpses into the kinds of environments in which songs were performed. And a great example of this is the positioning of vocal and instrumental parts in printed scores that facilitated impromptu uh, musical gatherings. So this is an example from William Layton's uh, Tears and Lamentations of a Sorrowful Soul, where you can see that the four singers, uh, the, the, the convention was likely to have them gathered around a table to, to sing these pieces. Ultimately, however, notated music represents only a fraction of the music that actually circulated in the early modern period. It's important to keep in mind that in the still predominantly oral culture of 16th and 17th century England, songs circulated regularly without music. Popular tunes were memorized, carried within the body, and ready to be matched to a particular text. And this crops up very often both in, in manuscripts and in printed ballad broadsides, references that a ballad text should be sung to the tune of. And this particular one is a ballad from the country sent to show how we should fast this Lent, sung to the tune of the cramp. This was also a common feature of uh, manuscript miscellanies and songbooks as well. Uh, this one is a prophecy of good things to come concerning the kingdom of Emmanuel, sung to the tune of I have been a fiddler these 15 years. <laughs> Our visceral reaction to the indication that a carol or a hymn should be sung to a tune like Greensleeves is evidence of the kind of response that a reference to these kinds of tunes uh, would have triggered in an early modern reader. And it's important to note also that the tunes often themselves carried very particular sociocultural and even political resonances that could add layers of meaning to the performance of a particular text. Relatively few of these named tunes survive, unfortunately, given their, their, their wonderful names, uh, but growing digital ballad archives hosted by the Bodleian and by the University of California, Santa Barbara, are making it possible not only to view broadside texts online, but also to hear some of the tunes. As these examples suggest, even in the absence of musical notation, texts classified generically as songs or influenced by particular vocal styles can offer an important trace of ephemeral moments of vocal production. And as a literary scholar, these kinds of textual traces are particularly important in my research. As my work has progressed, I've become increasingly interested in descriptions of the singing body and physiological accounts of the movement of breath and the production of vocal sound. And this has been an important focus of my work this month at the Bodleian. I've been examining early modern singing handbooks and musical treatises, which are, were practical documents aimed at the aspiring amateur singer that set out rules for good musicianship and vocal technique. Typically, practical musical treatises from the period, like the very popular A Plain and Easy Introduction to Practical Music uh, by Thomas Morley, and A Brief Introduction to the Skill of Music by John Playford, concentrate on sight reading and basic compositional skills 
rather than vocal pedagogy. This is to some extent reflective of the challenge of adequately capturing the physical experience of singing in words. As Basili writes, I find it appropriate to deal with vocal music in general and at the same time to set forth some rules for its proper performance, as far as this is possible in an art which would seem to exist in performance rather in the rules governing it. Yet there are documents that do concentrate explicitly on the voice. Basili's treatise is a really superb example. Uh, and, and these provide important insight into how early moderns conceptualize the singing body and vocal practice. A good English example is William Bath's A Brief Introduction to the Skill of Song, which was published in 1595. And this text emphasizes, among other things, good pronunciation of vowels and consonants, so good, good diction, uh, importance of practicing breath control, keeping the tongue relaxed, and having a clear voice. This, this adjective clear crops up over and over again in uh, descriptions of what the singer should aspire towards. And as you can see, he also includes uh, solfege exercises for the singer to practice, to develop uh, their ear. So how might, how might these kinds of traces of song performance impact our understanding of specific early modern literary texts? In the time that remains, I want to briefly discuss one case study, the anonymous musical setting of Mary Sidney, Countess of Pembroke's Psalm 130. Mary Sidney was the sister of Sir Philip Sidney, uh, and she was herself uh, a wonderful poet and a patron both of literature and of music. This is one of two musical settings of her psalms. The other is also a penitential psalm, Psalm 51. And it's a, this, this setting of Psalm 130 is an example that offers a, a unique opportunity to bring musical and performance dimensions to bear on psalm translations that are typically studied and taught only from a literary perspective. Critics have justly celebrated the metrical and formal virtuosity of the Psalms translated by the Countess of Pembroke and her brother. It was a collaborative project, but then uh, Philip Sidney died uh, partway through and Mary Sidney was responsible for completing the bulk of the translations. So critics have celebrated the, the metrical innovation of these translations, but the poem's musical and performative dimensions have received less attention. Both John Donne and Amelia Lanier wrote poems that connect the Sydney Psalms explicitly with sung performance. But the two surviving settings preserved in the British Library offer evidence that at least some of the translations were circulating musically. The two settings date to around 1615, so this is about 15 years after Mary Sidney completed the project and six years before her death. The setting is scored for solo treble and lute, so it would have facilitated performance by a female singer. We don't know for sure whether Mary Sidney was aware of this setting, but it's, it is possible that, that she commissioned, heard, or maybe even performed the songs. We know that she grew up in a musical household and she was proficient on the lute. Much of the effective impact of Psalm 130 stems from Pembroke's metrical innovation. Both visually and acoustically, the meter in which the poem appears in her translation suggests a gasping appeal to God that reinforces the speaker's depth of grief. And these are the first six lines. 
From depth of grief where drowned I lie, Lord, for relief to thee I cry. My earnest, vehement, crying, praying, grant quick, attentive, hearing, weighing. So you can hear the urgency and the breathlessness built into the meter of this poem. And the rhetorical juxtaposition in the, the last two lines here of the psalmist's earnest, vehement, crying, praying, and God's longed for quick, attentive, hearing, weighing, highlights the intensity of the psalmist's distress, even as it sets up the possibility of God's active and swift response. This translation is very, very different from other English versifications of the psalm that were circulating in the period. Compare the popular Sternhold and Hopkins version. Lord, to thee I make my moan, when dangers me oppress. I call, I sign, I plain and groan, trusting to find release, etc. So Pembroke's version is, is uh, quite, quite different from, from this. I'd like you to listen now to the musical setting of the first stanza as Matthew and I perform it. And I'll invite Matthew to come up at this point. The piece opens with the lute. And when the voice enters, you'll hear the psalmist's grief reflected uh, in a series of harmonic shifts and in, in the, the movement of the voice downwards, nearly an octave to the depths of grief <laughs> where drowned I lie. The vocal line is quite disjointed and it becomes increasingly chromatic as well, so you'll hear some more dissonance. Uh, uh, it's not a long piece, um, but, but you will hear uh, after, uh, after that opening line some, some more dissonant uh, harmonies. Ultimately, the setting does offer some resolution. The final line draws rhythmic attention to the quickness of God's response. But the piece works primarily to convey the vehemence of the psalmist's plea that is evoked so powerfully in Pembroke's gasping verse. So this is Mary Sidney's uh, Psalm 130, an anonymous setting. this musical setting in order to insert him or herself into the emotional state offered by the flexible first-person eye of the psalm. However, for early moderns, 
there was a vital rhetorical interplay between music and text, particularly when animated in performance, that was believed to be integral to the psalm genre. And this piece offers evidence of that. Commentators urged readers to sing psalms in part because the fusion of tune and text was understood to enhance a psalm's rhetorical potency. The tune, coupled with the experience of actually singing the psalm, worked to imprint David's words more deeply into the memories of both singer and listener. Singing psalms was also believed to set up a more direct avenue of communication with God. So if you wanted a quick response, better to sing rather than, than to speak the psalms or, or just to reflect silently on them. And this is particularly useful in the context of the penitential psalms. Again, it's not clear whether Pembroke would have known this setting, but it's significant that in her translations, she emphasizes singing as a form of self-expression that women were encouraged to participate in. She repeatedly depicts women raising their voices in song to God. So whether this setting might have been performed by a woman on her own or with a small group of family members or friends, the musical transmission of these pieces by a treble voice encapsulates the communicative efficacy of the psalms as song. It also reflects the authoritative space for women's psalm performance that Pembroke emphasizes in her translations. The Sydney Pembroke Psalter, along with its extant musical settings, stands as a valuable case study for considering the musical grounding of lyric form and poetic process that's so often overlooked in literary analysis. Early modern song is an elusive phenomenon, yet my work aims to underscore the significance of considering song through a methodological lens that it can account for its musical and performative dimensions and the rhetorical interplay between lyric, music, and singing body. Ultimately, in probing song from an embodied perspective, I want to suggest that we might better tune our own ears to the function and significance of this genre in early modern England. Thank you very much. <laughs>